Welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we rank them from best to worst. I'm Ben. I'm Sarah. How are you doing today, Sarah? Doing alright. Excited to see this movie. Yes, I am also very excited to see this movie. (laughs) This is all you've been talking about since we finished the last episode. (laughs) Pretty much. It's our Super Jewel episode, Sarah. We're watching Phantom of the Opera, starring Lon Chaney. Or should I say, ooh. (laughs) (laughs) I'm a huge fan of this movie. I first saw it probably when I was around 12, I'm going to say. I got it on a public domain, cheap, bottom-of-the-barrel Walmart DVD that was like, had this... Nosferatu and Fritz Lang's Metropolis on one DVD. That's quite the collection. Though. Yeah, it was like the like silent film starter pack. They were all garbage, sixteen millimeter black and white prints with public domain music just looping in the background of them. And I've since upgraded my copies of all three of those films multiple times. But <laughs> uh, I love Phantom of the Opera. I love I loved the musical as a kid. I never got to see it as a kid, but my Parents went to a late 80s showing of it at the Jubilee and bought the original cast CD. Yeah. They played that, like, at home all the time, the original cast CD. Dad liked to play the, like, main Phantom of the Opera song for, like, Halloween music and stuff. (laughs) So I became obsessed with it because the CD had, like, a booklet with all the lyrics so you could just read the whole script. They had this book with all these photos and behind-the-scenes information about it, and it just fascinated me as a kid, and it's still one of my favorite things. But yeah, my my interest in the musical led to my interest in the film versions and the book that I've, which I the original novel that is, uh, which I've read, and it, this is probably my favorite film version though. Cool. I have never read the book. I've seen this nineteen twenty five Lon Chaney version. I think the only other film version I've seen was the Emmy Rossum Jared Butler. One. Oh, the, the, the movie version of the musical that was pretty bad. From like sometime in the 2000s? 2004. It was, it was not good. I really enjoyed it back then, but I, I was 14. So. I, I was 14 as well, and I didn't enjoy it because it wasn't... I'd listened to that original cast CD so many times that the fact that like they changed stuff and the performances were different, and I don't know, I was too much of a purist and I, I was <laughs> angry. We've also seen the 1940s version with Claude Rains. That's right. I forgot that we had seen that. Yeah. We'll be seeing it again, of course, but... Well, anything with Claude Rains is just must-watch again. (laughs) Well... (laughs) Everything with Phantom of the Opera is really neat. It's really cool how it's pervaded culture. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, let me tell you about this opera house, since it's as much a character in the Phantom as the people. Mm Mm-hmm. So the opera house was originally called Théâtre de l'Opera, so the opera theater. Okay. Um, Straightforward. Yeah. Until 1989, when it was renamed to Palais Garnier after the architect Charles Garnier. It seats nearly 2,000 people. The stage itself can hold up to uh, 450 people. 
so it's huge, is basically what I'm trying to get at, <laughs> uh, both in terms of audience capacity and stage capacity. It was built between 1861 and 1875, and it cost 36 million francs, and that's the value in 1875. Right. So... A lot of money. Yeah. <laughs> Building it was a huge task, clearly by the size of it, but it was a task made no less difficult by being interrupted by the Paris siege during the Franco-Prussian War, mm -hmm. uh, the fall of the Second French Empire, and the Paris Commune. Yeah, I guess 1861 to 1875, they would have gone through a few regime changes while they were building it then. Yeah. The Opera House had parts of it already built by the time that it was the Paris Siege during the Franco-Prussian War, and even during the Paris Commune, uh, because parts of the Opera House were used as a hospital during the war and uh, as pl a place to keep prisoners during the Commune. Oh, weird. Use what you have on hand, right? Sure, sure. During construction, when they first started, they were excavating the ground, and they came across this, for lack of a better word, underground lake. It was really just like swampland. The groundwater just kept rising. Mm -hmm. And despite using several pumps for over eight hours to drain the water, it just stayed at a constant level. So the architect, Charles Garnier, he decided to incorporate this into the architecture. So he built a stone water tank that would be a place for the water to go. The pressure is such that it won't rise any higher, mm -hmm. and it also acts as a stabilizing element within the overall structure of the house. Okay, and that's, that's the underground lake from, from the story, then? Yes. <laughs> during a performance during 1896, the chandelier fell... Uh, and it killed one person, a concierge who was working. The chandelier itself is about six tons, and what's funny is it's so big and so large that it will disrupt the view for the seats at the upper parts of the house. Yeah. They went to the architect, and the whole point of going to the opera is so you can see it. Why would you build this? And his basic answer was, but the aesthetic. Yeah, like, the fact that, you know, the chandelier falling is such a big part of the story, but the fact that an opera auditorium even has a chandelier is crazy on the face of it to begin with. Yeah, it's... He wanted, like, a centerpiece in this big auditorium that would cause a lot of conversation, and it's like, dude, there's the there's stage. There's a performance. And so the chandelier falling was a real thing that yes. happened? What, yeah. When When did that happen again? 1896. Okay. Similar to the chandelier uh, and with the underground lake and everything, there's these little pieces of fact that fed into rumors of a phantom. Okay. Even now, doing research for this was a little frustrating because there's still people adamant that the Phantom of the Opera is a true story. Mm. And I, I don't think it is, but people are adamant about it. Yeah, it's, it's one of those cases where if you put in enough truth into your fiction, it becomes convincing enough that people will want to believe it's real, right? Yeah, and I think a big part of it, too, comes down to the author, Gaston LaRue, his writing style. Mm -hmm. Gaston Louis-Alfred LaRue was born in Paris in 1868, and he died in Nice in 1927. Uh, he was only around 58, 57 years old. He studied law in Paris, 
1890, he became a court reporter and a theater critic for the Paris daily newspaper Le Corte de Paris. Okay. Why he got the gig court reporter and theater critic? <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> yeah, that's an interesting beat. <laughs> yeah. He worked as an investigative reporter, and this work continued into covering the 1905 Russian Revolution, which he was also present at, for the Paris newspaper Le Metin. Wow. One story he was chasing involved the Opera House, uh, specifically during the Paris Commune, uh, because the Opera House held some prisoners. Mm -hmm. And this is probably where he first started hearing some of these rumors about a phantom from the people who were on the construction site. Mm -hmm. In 1907, he left journalism for fiction, where he would become the author of an entire subgenre of detective fiction, which is locked room mysteries. Yeah, yeah. What was the name of his his book, the famous one? <laughs> uh, well, he wrote a lot, but the two books he's most famous for are Phantom and this one, Le Mystère de la Chambre Jaune, uh, which is the... Mystery of the Yellow Room. Right, and that was the big detective fiction hit, the yeah, Locked Room Mystery. The, it's the very first Locked Room Mystery novel. For those who aren't in the know, the Locked Room premise is that there's a crime or murder in a locked room, and the mystery is how the perpetrator got in and got out without any kind of trace. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's pretty, like, once you get that that's what it is, you can see it throughout a whole ton of detective fiction. Yeah. But it started with this dude. Yeah. The Mystery of the Yellow Room uh, was written as a serial during 1907 uh, in the fall, um, and then was later published uh, outright in 1908. Mm -hmm. LaRue wrote several novels starring the detective, Rutabille, uh, and his, the first adventure is The Yellow Room, but he went on to write so much more about this dude. In addition to these several other novels about this particular detective, uh, LaRue was fairly prolific, so much so that in 1919, with fellow author Arthur Bernade, formed a film company, the Société des Cinévomans, which would turn their published novels into films. Yes. Oh, I see you have more info about that. Well, it was due to his work with that that he ended up meeting Carl Lemley. Okay. So despite being a prolific writer, uh, the two pieces of work that he's most well known for are The Mystery in the Yellow Room and Phantom. Phantom was published as a serial between 1909 and 1910. The book was published in 1910 and the English translation came a year later. While its popularity is due to the films and Andrew Lloyd Webber's adaptations, arguably it's lasted because people can't tell the truth from the fiction. Mm -hmm. A big part of that is LaRue deliberately opens the novel with this proclamation that this is true, that it comes from research and interviews that he himself did, as well as this mixing of the real events and people, all of this working to uphold the belief that, no, 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 this was true. Mm -hmm. So the pieces of evidence that people use to support this belief that the novel is true one, there's an underwater lake under an opera house. Right, which you've already explained is like a structural necessity. <laughs> yeah, or it was a thing that they couldn't get around, so they incorporated it mm -hmm. into the architecture. Two, the falling chandelier was incorporated into the novel, even down to the specific fact that the victim was this lady who was just working as a concierge. Mm -hmm. um, she's named and described as a concierge in the novel. Right. Three... Apparently, 
and I couldn't find a whole lot of stuff to support this online, but there was an architect working as a contractor under Garnier. His name was Eric, and he asked to live underneath the opera house during construction, and he was never heard from again. Ah, yeah. And, you know, what's the fandom's name? It's Eric. The whole deal with him and his backstory in the novel is that, like, he built parts of the opera house under contract during its construction and stuff, and that's how he knows all the secret passageways and so on. Yeah. Number four. There was a real Christine. Oh. Um, soprano Christine Nielsen is very similar to Christine Daae, both in physical description, description of their backgrounds, being Swedish, coming from a poor family, that kind of deal. Okay. And number five... In the novel, LaRue describes an excavation happening where managers will bury basically a time capsule of buried phonograph records. Um, And in the novel, LaRue describes a skeleton being found during that excavation for the time capsule. Um, There is an actual time capsule. It was, I'll say, discovered in 1989 because people forgot about it. Um, But there was no skeleton or anything like that. But the time capsule with the phonograph records is real. Hmm. I wonder, you know, obviously as a reporter, you know, he would know the value of including all these small little details. Mm-hmm. Having done the story on the opera house, he would have heard about a lot of this stuff. And I figure, like, the other reason why, you know, so much of it hews close to the truth is if the novel came out in, like, say, 1911, and the real-life chandelier incident happened in 1896, you know, that's only 15 years apart. Mm -hmm. So you can't just start making shit up because your audience is going to know what happened. Yeah, and I think it's also the fact that it was published as a serial first Mm -hmm. with, like, the opening being like, no, 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 I did all this investigation. This is the actual story. Things have passed on long enough that now I can finally tell you the actual story of what happened here. Mm -hmm. And having it come out as if they're, like, columns being written by an actual reporter because he was an actual reporter. (laughs) Right. Like, there's so much of this that I think is really interesting with, like, these blurring boundaries. But I stand by it being fictional. Oh, sure. (laughs) Sure. I mean, yeah, it's just really well-researched fiction, which is, you know, what makes it compelling. Mm -hmm. So even with all of these similarities to real-life people and events, um, I thought it would be good to cover the plot summary just in case people haven't read it so we can see the differences between the novel and the film. Yeah, I think, you know, if you're listening to the podcast and you're thinking to yourself, well, I've I've seen the musical, I've, I've watched the Joel Schumacher version, like, having watched pretty much every version of Phantom and having read the novel as well, like, straight up, nothing follows the book. The book's very different from all the other versions. <laughs> so, yeah, let's, what's, what's, let's go into the plot summary for the book. All right, so mainly because it was published as a serial. It is incredibly convoluted (laughs) and ongoing, but I will try to sum it up as best as possible. So it's set in 1890s Paris. Um, The opera house is believed haunted. Judging by the time frame, it's like newly constructed. It all kind of starts off with a stagehand named Joseph Bouquet being hanged um, mysteriously. Mm -hmm. But he was being a a bit of a, a boastful brute. It's rumored that the fandom killed him for being such a rude douche bro. I see, yep. (laughs) 
Meanwhile, Christine Daye is uh, an understudy to Carlotta, and she's being tutored by who she calls an angel of music. Uh, she believes that this angel is sent to her by her deceased father. Mm-hmm. As she's understudy to Carlotta, when Carlotta can't perform one night, Christine performs, and her childhood friend, Vicomte Raoul de Chagny, sees his childhood friend on stage and rushes to meet her after the show to reconnect. He overhears some male voice talking to Christine in her room, and when he enters, no one's there, and Christine tries to explain, but he doesn't believe her at all. Christine goes to her dad's grave, where a cloaked figure happens to meet her. Uh, Raoul confronts the guy, but gets knocked unconscious. Because mm-hmm. Raoul's useless. Yeah. While all of this is happening, the Phantom is giving the opera house managers a letter demanding that Christine perform the lead in Faust. Mm-hmm. They disregard it, and uh, this causes Carlotta to have a bit of throat trouble, and uh, more importantly, the chandelier falls, crashes, and kills concierge. Mm-hmm. During all that hubbub, Christine gets abducted, and the Phantom reveals himself to her as Eric. Tries to be very romantic, kind of a gothic romance, until she takes off his mask, and he's this horribly disfigured man. Um, he has yellow dead flesh, he's noseless, lipless, has sunken-eyed face, basically looks like a skull. She's kept there for maybe a couple weeks, Finally, uh, Christine's released, probably because she was contemplating suicide, and Eric's like, cool, I'll release you, but you need to pledge your loyalty to me. I give you this gold ring, wear this to show your loyalty to me. So Christine's released, but she still tells Raoul. She runs up to the roof with him and tells him there, thinking that, since that's like as far away from the basement as you can get, you're safe. Yeah. Eric, of course, knows, because he's the Phantom. Of course, he knows all. He is enraged about this, kidnaps her during the first performance, and brings her back down to the basement and attempts to force her into marriage. Raoul and... (laughs) Sorry, I can't help but laugh, because this is the part of the story where the Persian shows up. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Raoul and his acquaintance, the Persian, attempt to rescue Christine, but are captured by the Phantom. And the Phantom is torturing them and threatens to kill them unless Christine marries him. Uh, long story short, she talks him down. Mm-hmm. And uh, he agrees to release Raoul and the Persian. So the Phantom goes to kiss her forehead and she kisses his forehead back. Um, and he's so moved by this that he releases her on one condition, that she must visit him on his death day. Mm-hmm. Then he dies of love. Yeah, he he does the old melodrama trick of dying of a broken heart. Yeah, the Persian was tasked with reporting the death whenever it would come in the newspapers. Christine sees that, buries him under the opera house, and leaves the gold ring that he had given her for loyalty. Phantom's a weird book. Yeah. There's so much weird little details because it doesn't know what genre it is. <laughs> like, it's it's a mystery detective melodrama historical romance gothic horror thriller. Yeah. There's, like, this whole thing where the Phantom has the most convoluted, crazy backstory ever, where he used to design, like, death traps for, like, some dude's palace in Persia, and that's where the Persian knows him from, and he's been tracking him ever since, <laughs> and, like... 
crazy, crazy stuff like that just all through the book. There's a, a whole thing where, you know, one thing that the book makes very clear is that the Phantom's, like, much older than Christine because he was around when the opera house was being constructed and she's, you know, very young. So he has to be, like, a whole generation older than her. And until he reveals himself as being Eric and being in love with her, she's not sure if he's, like an angel or if he's like the ghost of her dead father Mm -hmm. and the whole thing is like you know because he's about the same age as her dad would be if he was still alive and like you said it's mostly because it's a serial so it's got that structure of a million subplots and characters and things going on all the time yeah and i think it's also interesting that like LaRue went into fiction 1907, he did the Yellow Room Mystery, Mm -hmm. and then he did this. Mm -hmm. Phantom as a serial was longer than the Yellow Room. Okay. So I feel like this is when he he realized, like, oh, I just need to keep writing these serials to get money as a writer. Yeah. He, He realized... The Charles Dickens Get Rich Quick scheme. Sure. If you want to call it that, sure. So he he published Phantom in 1910, translation was 1911, and then eight years later is when he formed the film company. That is probably the easiest way to segue over to the movie adaptation, because his film company didn't make the movie adaptation. Mm -hmm. They had nothing to do with it. But it is through that work that he met Carl Lemley. And Carl Lemley's an interesting guy. He's someone we talked about very briefly in our very first episode. And he's someone who's going to be very important moving forward. Because Carl Lemley's the founder of Universal Studios. And if there's a studio that's synonymous with horror film, it's Universal. Yeah. So Carl Lemley was born in 1897 in Germany to a Jewish family who emigrated to the U.S. in 1884. And by 1894, Lemley was head of advertising for this company in Wisconsin. In 1906, he quit his job and started the first movie theater in Chicago. He also challenged Thomas Edison's then monopoly of the film industry. At the time, Edison had the patent on sort of all the proprietary technology you needed to do to make films and distribute and show them. Mm. Uh, So Lemley took him to court and sued him under monopoly laws. In 1912, Lemley became president of his newly founded movie production company, Universal Studios. And in 1915, he moved the studio out to the San Fernando Valley in California to take advantage of three things. One, the sunlight, because you needed so much light to expose film and they hadn't figured out how to make huge giant Klieg lights yet. Two, the locations. If you're in California, you have desert, forest, ocean, mountains, like, everything's within, like, a 20-minute drive. That's a really good point. I never thought of that. Yeah, that's that's the reason. <laughs> um, the third reason why he moved things out to California was it just made it just far enough away from Edison's lawyers for it to be inconvenient for Edison to, like, send the lawyers out to get him. <laughs> Because of that, California became the hub location of the United States filmmaking industry. Unlike Edison, Lemley credited the performers in his films. Edison preferred to just not credit people except for himself. Sounds like Edison. Yes. So because of this, many star performers switched to Lemley's company, uh, such as Florence Lawrence, Mary Pickford, and our old friend King Baggett. Hmm. Universal became the biggest studio in Hollywood, but it had a very unique focus. Um, A lot of the Hollywood studios, MGM, Fox, Warner Brothers, 
they were going after urban audiences in big cities. Lemley focused his efforts on building audiences in rural areas with populist melodramas, westerns, and serials. And in fact, Universal split their film output into four brands. Uh, they had Red Feather releases, which were low budget, Bluebird, which is their name for their kind of middle-of-the-road releases, and then there were Universal Jewels, which were their more ambitious features, and then once a year, beginning in 1919, they would produce a Super Jewel. These Universal Super Jewels were extravagant prestige pictures for which no expense was spared. <laughs> was it common at the time to split your releases like that? It was a thing that Universal did to distinguish their releases from other studios because MGM would always do kind of these big prestige pictures and Warner Brothers kind of did lower budget urban gritty crime films and you know the studios all had specialties kind of back then and what Universal was doing was saying okay we're gonna make one movie a year that's like a big MGM style movie uh, and then the rest of the year we're making cheap movies that will pay for that one movie. Okay. Um, the Super Jewels were the first million dollar plus budgeted movies to come out of Hollywood. Wow. Lemley financed all his own films which is the number one rule of what not to do if you're a movie producer these days. <laughs> and Universal, unlike many of its competitors, didn't own its own theater chain. So the Super Jewels were huge financial risks. You were putting a ton of money into something, and you didn't really have an easy secondary source of revenue to fall back on if they failed. And the early Super Jewels were especially risky because they were produced by Maverick actor-director-auteur Eric von Stroheim. If you've ever seen, like, old Looney Tunes cartoons where there's kind of this stereotype image of a movie director as this, like, German guy with, like, a bullhorn and a riding crop and tall boots... Yeah. That's Eric von Stroheim. <laughs> but Universal invested in these big sensational ad campaigns nationwide that created an enormous amount of excitement for the Super Jewels, and that led to them being these huge box office successes. It makes sense that since he started out as director of advertising, mm -hmm. that that would be such a focus. Yeah, and like, you know, the fact that they leveraged what stars were appearing in their movies and, and this sort of thing. 1923's Super Jewel had been an adaptation of Victor Hugo's novel, The Hunchback of Notre Dame. The film had been made as a massive historical costume romantic melodrama <laughs> uh, and served as a breakout hit for its star, Lon Chaney. And we talked a little bit about Lon Chaney in our episode on the monster. Mm -hmm. So if you want to hear more about the details of his early life, you can go back and check out that episode. Uh, but Hunchback was the movie that turned him from being a character actor to being a bona fide star. Chaney created a horrid and grotesque appearance for the character with his world-renowned makeup skills, but managed to create a sympathetic performance that shone through and endeared the character to audiences. The film cost Universal $1.25 million to make. Oh my god. And it grossed $3 million back, making it Universal's biggest hit ever. Lemley, of course, began searching for an ideal follow-up vehicle to replicate Hunchback's success, as well as serve as a future Super Jewel vehicle for Cheney. Uh, he took a vacation to Paris, and meeting up with some other film industry people there, happened to meet Gaston LaRue. Mm. And, you know, speaking to LaRue, he mentioned how much he admired the Paris Opera House. And so LaRue 
gave Lemley a copy of Phantom of the Opera. Lemley read it and immediately bought the movie rights to it, seeing as it fit the bill as a Hunchback of Notre Dame successor perfectly. Opulent location, spectacle on the screen, romance, drama, action, and a central, deformed, sympathetic character for Lon Chaney to play. 1924's Super Jewel was a film called Merry-Go-Round, which was an Eric von Stroheim film that got way over budget and out of control, so Stroheim was fired. And New Zealander Rupert Julian replaced him and finished production. So, for 1925's Super Jewel, Phantom of the Opera, Julian was put in charge of the production as director, and they began shooting in late 1924. But problems dogged the entire shoot from day one. It was a huge production, for one thing. The Paris Opera House was meticulously recreated on Soundstage 28, a massive building that was constructed solely to hold the sets for Phantom. <laughs> um, due to the need for the stage to support thousands of extras, it was built with steel girders, and because of that, it remained in place on the Universal Studio lots until 2014, oh. making it the oldest movie structure in the world. Uh, when they finally did demolish it in 2014, the Opera House set pieces, which had been used not only in Phantom, but in many subsequent adaptations of Phantom and subsequent films sort of redressed, those set pieces were restored and then put away in storage. So those are still the oldest existing set pieces in Hollywood. Pretty much every time they make Phantom of the Opera, they just reuse these sets. You know, the, the film was this huge undertaking. The chandelier crashing scene was a giant spectacle, and you really see that in the film. But Rupert Julian and the director of photography never saw eye to eye. They argued constantly. There's a, a really famous story about Julian insisting that a, a scene had to be lit darker. And uh, back in the silent film era, it was common for a director and a director of photography to look through a small tinted lens so that you could get an idea of what the scene looked like in monochrome. And Julian kept insisting that he wanted the shot darker and darker and darker. And they kept trying it darker. He said, no, darker still. Uh, and he would ask for this lens to look through to see what it would look like in the camera. So finally they handed him a, like an opaque coin. And he put that in front of his face and went, yep, that's perfect. The cast and crew were constantly fighting with him. Uh, you know, he had poor relations with Mary Philbin, who was playing Christine. It seemed like the production was a little bit too big for him to handle, and it got a little bit out of his control. There are rumors that persist to this day that Cheney ended up insisting on directing all of his scenes himself. Oh. Because he just felt that Julian was incompetent. Did Cheney have any experience in directing? Yes. Um, when he was a bit character actor in the 1910s, he would often direct short films just as something else to do to make ends meet. Cool. Now, for The Phantom, Lon Chaney created some of his most physically extreme makeup yet. To achieve the effect of the character's skull-like face, he pinned his eyelids open. He wired the tip of his nose up. He pinned his lips back. He wore false teeth, among other prosthetics, for the cheekbones, for the skull cap. It was an immensely painful makeup to wear, from all accounts, but very effective. Mm -hmm. The movie, they spared no expense. It's tinted, which was going out of style due to the expense at this time. Yeah. The masquerade sequence was shot 
in Technicolor, making this our very first color footage to show up in a feature film. Mm -hmm. um, the process of Technicolor used for this film was called Two-Tone Technicolor. And it was this very complicated process where you had two strips of film, one that was sensitive to red and one that was sensitive to green, and each was half the width of a regular strip of film. And you shot both of these strips through the camera, and then when it came time to make a print, you glued the two strips together so that you would have color. This early two-tone Technicolor process just uses red and green, so it reproduces some color tones well, but not all of them. So it has a little bit of a weird, unique look. It helps give both that spectacle of, whoa, color, mm -hmm. but also colors that don't quite look right, so it looks supernatural. Yeah, it, it definitely gives the whole scene a, an interesting feeling. Two-Tone Technicolor was part of a, a long process that the Technicolor company was going through to try and create and perfect color film. There's another color effect in this film, mm -hmm. in addition to the tinting and the Technicolor, which is something called the Hanshigel dye process. And this is used for a scene in the film that's otherwise tinted blue, but the Phantom, who's wearing a red costume, appears with his costume in red and his, his face colored and all this kind of stuff. And the way that this process worked was you applied a mat frame by frame. This mat would cover the areas you didn't want colored, and then you could dye the areas that you did want colored to that proper color. Mm. And then you flipped the mat to tint the rest of the picture. So essentially you're looking at, for that scene, you know, frame by frame, individually coloring this one character. And they would have to do that for every print. Yeah, yeah. Super expensive. Like, no expense was spared on this thing. Now, Julian's version of the film was extremely close to the original novel. It's got the full subplots about Christine's dad, her past with Raoul, the angel of music, the dad's violin, the novel's ending with Eric dying of a broken heart. Previews of this first cut were held in L.A. in January of 1925, but it was pulled after negative reviews and audience response. The studio feared that a gothic romance melodrama was perhaps too weird, <laughs> and that maybe audiences weren't getting it. Cheney told Universal to fire Julian and do reshoots under a new director. So Edward Sedgwick, one of Buster Keaton's directors, Aww. was brought on to reshoot the film, adding many new scenes and many new subplots, and basically retooling the whole film into being a romantic comedy with a lot of comic relief characters added, more rivals for Christine's affection, but also a whole new action-packed ending where the Phantom is hunted down by an angry mob. This version was previewed in San Francisco in April of 1925 and was booed off the screen. Oh, wow. Reviews were disastrous. It was considered a complete unfocused mess. The second version had changed the story so much that it was a totally different movie. So... Universal had put a lot of money into this thing. It needed, they needed a movie that worked. The, the film was saved in editing when uh, Lemley brought in director Lois Weber to salvage the footage shot without using any additional resources. She had to re-edit from Julian and Sedgwick's version some sort of version that worked. <laughs> they could not spend any money on more reshoots. Now, Weber is a film legend in her own right. She's often considered the most important female director in American cinema history, Whoa. and she's totally someone that listeners should look into on their own. 
I haven't even heard of her before. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. She's as prolific as D.W. Griffith, as significant to the development of film technique, but her films were often controversial dealing with humanitarian and social justice themes. What was her name again? Lois Weber. She got rid of almost all of Edward Cedric's material <laughs> and restored the majority of Julian's version, but she tightened it up by excising most of the extraneous subplots and also keeping Sedgwick's action ending mm. rather than Julian's original novel accurate ending. She also changed title cards in order to simplify characters and backstories, such as changing the Phantom's super complicated backstory into a more simplified version, as well as changing the Persian character into a French secret police officer. This version of the film finally hit wide release in fall of 1925. It was a critical and box office success and made $2 million in gross at the box office. Wow. Phantom would end up being Cheney's last film with Universal as he was lured away in 1925 for a contract with MGM. The follow-up to Phantom of the Opera was another historical romantic melodrama with a deformed sympathetic protagonist in a Beauty and the Beast romance story. This would be an adaptation of Victor Hugo's The Man Who Laughs. Now, Man Who Laughs came out in 1928. By 28, sound was starting to become a technology, and what they would do is they would put music and sound effects onto soundtrack discs that you could play alongside the film as it showed, but not dialogue because it was so hard to sync this sort of stuff. For their 1929 Super Jewel, Universal planned to reissue Phantom, but this time with sound. Oh, wow. So Ernst Lemley, Carl's nephew, took a crew and reshot all of the film's scenes that required dialogue with the original actors, but now in sound, including singing in the opera sequences. Oh. The actress for Carlotta was replaced with a new performer, as the original performer couldn't sing. Much re-editing happened again to once more streamline the story from even the 1925 wide-release version. However, Lon Chaney was contracted to MGM, so the original silent versions of his scenes had to be used. And the reissue's advertising even had to stress that Chaney's performance was a silent one because he hadn't made his sound debut over at MGM yet. The reissue was a success as well, coming out in February of 1930, and was so successful that it led to the production of Dracula, the following year, in 1931. Oh, wow. Which was originally intended to be a Cheney vehicle before he died of throat cancer. So if he died of throat cancer, did he ever make his sound debut? He made one sound film, a movie called The Unholy Three, which is a remake of a silent movie of the same name that he did in the early 20s, both with director Todd Browning. The original 1925 preview version of the film that's super true to the book, that's lost as is the aborted rom-com Sedgwick version. <laughs> the 1925 general release version has not survived in 35mm negative or print. It has only survived in 16mm copies that were rented by Universal for their show-at-home program and thus are in very bad shape. The 1930 sound version is also lost. All that survives of it are the soundtrack discs, that go along with it. So, you may be wondering, what the hell are we watching? Well, like, I know we own it on DVD, but I don't know, I don't remember what version it is. 
the best quality copy of Phantom of the Opera, the most common one that people see, the one that survives, is not any of these versions I've been talking about. <laughs> the film survives today in an amazing condition copy due to this thing called the 1929 George Eastman House print. George Eastman House is a film archive, and they have there this bizarre version of Phantom in this gorgeous 35mm negative. This version's silent, with title cards throughout, and uses original 1925 shot footage for the most part, but re-edited to fit the structure of the 1930 sound version. So it's, it's like the 1930 sound version, but using the silent version's footage, except that the angles don't match the 1925 general release version, meaning that this negative was actually from a second camera used on set for a backup negative. Even though it's silent, it follows the sequence of the 1930 sound version, and it uses the Carlotta singing scenes from the 1930 sound version, just silent. And then for scenes that have the 1925 Carlotta actress, she's been recreated in the title cards as now being Carlotta's mother. What? So why this print exists is uncertain, but given its bizarre mix of materials, the most likely explanation is that it was a silent version prepared alongside the sound version for use by theaters that were not yet equipped with sound when the reissue happened. That makes sense. Yeah. Like, so, if that's the case? Yeah. However... We know from theater programs that a silent version of the sound phantom was never actually released. But that would explain why this print is in such good condition. Mm. It was prepared and then just never used. This version's commonly referred to as the 1929 version due to the year that it was created, and its superb quality makes it the most commonly used for home video releases. Okay, so even though we're saying that this is 1925 in chronological order, it's actually a 1929 version. Correct. Now, Phantom's in public domain because Universal failed to renew the copyright in 1953. Yes! So, uh, if you want to watch along with us, you can on YouTube. If you go to our YouTube playlist, you'll find the version that we're watching. Because it's in public domain and because of all the complicated things I just <laughs> talked about, you better believe there's a lot of versions of Phantom out there. Mm. In past episodes, I've usually stated that the best version of these silent movies to watch is either from Criterion Collection, or more commonly, the company that's been getting my shoutouts is called Kino. Mm. Uh, I talk a lot about these Kino Restored Authorized Editions. Not in this case. Don't go get the Kino version of this. The version to get is the Image Entertainment Ultimate Edition DVD. This release features three different versions of the movie. It's got the 1929 version I just talked about, restored gorgeously with a score from Carl Davis. And this restoration was done by a company called Photoplay Productions, and it's really well regarded in film circles. It has the proper tinting colors, it restores the two-tone Technicolor, it restored the Hanshiegel frame-by-frame -frame <laughs> dyeing process. It has gorgeous picture. Um, the DVD itself has a lot of behind-the-scenes resources. Most of what I've been talking about tonight I know because I have this DVD. And then they also did a really cool thing. The 1930 sound version doesn't exist, but the soundtrack still does. So they took that soundtrack and matched it to the 1929 version's picture <laughs> and just didn't use the dialogue. They just used the sound effects and the music. So you can have kind of that version to kind of have a sense of what the sound version was kind of like. 
And then on a second disc, they have a 16mm version of the original 1925 wide release version of the movie. It's not really easy to watch, it's in really rough shape, but it's there, and it's included, which is really cool. So hunt out the Image Entertainment release, which is the version that I have up on our YouTube playlist. And you can find that playlist by going to screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com and looking under the tabs. Okay, so I think that (laughs) means that it's time for us to watch Phantom of the Opera, Sarah. Cool. Thanks, everyone, for sticking with us this long. Stay tuned for the discussion of the film. You're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and we will be right back. See you on the other side. Welcome back to Scream Scene. We just finished watching Phantom of the Opera from 1925. Yeah, for the most part. <laughs> yeah, this movie, in my opinion, still really holds up. Yeah, definitely. It's it's one of my favorite movies for a reason. And I think, you know, even with its very complicated production history and its <laughs> myriad versions and the fact that this version that we watched tonight is kind of almost like a like a patchwork yeah. of a lot of different stuff. For a film that's directed by three to four different people and pieced together by even more after the fact, it's pretty shockingly cohesive. For sure. Like, I feel like the only time that it goes on a bit too much is when we're in the Phantom Slayer for the last time, and, like, it really shows when it's like, Christine, do you pick the scorpion or the grasshopper? Mm-hmm. Like, I get where we need to have that because the scorpion turns and the water goes down for when the mob comes through. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's pretty well paced overall Mm -hmm. for what it is. There's really only the occasional weird hiccup where if you're really looking for it, you can see some weird seams between different shoots and directors and versions going on. But for the most part, you don't, if you're not looking for them, you don't see them. As to the the scorpion and the grasshopper thing, the, the pacing issue that you brought up, like, That's one of those weird things that I feel comes out of being a holdover from the novel and the Mm -hmm. film being so true to the novel because Raoul and his companion go through these like series of different kind of torture rooms and torture chambers and perils that they're put into and after a while you're right it does get tedious but of course LaRue was working in a serial medium so you're gonna have a cliffhanger every week and we're gonna be back and there's gonna be another cliffhanger. (laughs) Yeah. Perhaps we should do the plot summary. Yeah. We always do this. We're just so excited to talk about the movie, and then we just (laughs) skip ahead. So speaking of the novel, Sarah gave a very good plot summary of it before the break. And for the most part, in the broad strokes, the movie follows along. The big differences I would sort of identify in plot are the murder of Joseph Bouquet is turned from being sort of the inciting incident of the story at the beginning to the thing that sets off the third act at the end of the movie. Yeah, definitely. And that's done so that they can have this new ending. With the mob. Mm-hmm. Because the leader of the mob is Joseph's brother. Who's a, who's a new character. He's not yeah. in the book. As sort of you said before the break... Christine Daae is a singer at the Paris Opera House. 
Uh, she's the understudy for Carlotta. The Vicomte de Chagny has a big crush on her. And some new owners have taken over the opera house because the old owners are very eager to be done with the place. Largely due to the inhabitant of Box 5. Yes. <laughs> who has a bit of a demanding nature. The new owners, once they learn of the audience member in Box 5, they peek in to have a word with him, and it looks like the back of Dracula yeah, it's because just... of this cape that's <laughs> yeah. up. With the big collar. Yeah. And then, like, they get spooked, leave, and then they go back in and he's gone. Yeah. There's a lot of early mood setting in this film to get you into that spooky mood with the ballet corps freaking out and... Which I love. ...telling stories about what the opera ghost looks like and, and learning about what he really looks like from Joseph Bouquet and stuff. So yeah, so the new owners have to deal with this opera ghost who's insisting that Carlotta be replaced with her understudy Christine Daae. Meanwhile, it turns out that Christine's been getting music lessons from a mysterious voice on the other side of her mirror in her dressing room. You know, as you do. Yeah. Totally normal. <laughs> um, totally not the phantom that's haunting this particular theater. Yeah, yeah. She's just like, yeah, of course. Um, and she's like pretty totally down with it until he asks her to come through the mirror and turns out to be a dude in a mask. You can get a sense of the ugliness behind the mask because the mask looks so fake. Sure. It's not like the mask in the play, right? Where it's kind of half and you can kind of see half of his face. It's a bit more disruptive to that face-to-face -face relationship, I guess. Yeah, it's it's worth talking about sort of the, the evolution of that iconography of the Phantom's mask. In the novel, he wears a full face mask and it's described as being black. Oh, interesting. Um, and here, what Cheney's wearing is a half face mask that comes down to just below his nose, and it's white. And it sort of has this painted-on, like, doll's face, almost. And then over his mouth, there's sort of just, like, a cloth that's sort of... It's like a sort veil. Of, yeah, it's a veil. It's translucent. You can sort of see his mouth moving beneath it, but you can't get detail. And you can sort of see from that design how we eventually get to, like, the half mask. And I think it progressively gets sh shorter <laughs> in these different adaptations yeah. because of the want to showcase the actors acting. Sure. Well, and as the Phantom adaptations have gone on, they've gotten farther and farther away from how the book describes Phantom's disfigurement. I feel like the Phantom is as disfigured as he is villainous and as handsome as he is sympathetic. The more sympathetic they make that character, the more they want to keep him handsome until you get to like the Gerard Butler phantom who basically just has like a real bad sunburn on like one side of his face. Yeah. All versions of phantom have some villainy and some sympathy to them. It's just a matter of sort of how much on that scale to one way or the other you are. I would say that definitely this phantom is probably the most over on the villainy scale, including the novel's phantom. I think that changing the ending from that ending where he lets her go and dies of a broken heart to this ending where he straight up grabs her and goes off to kidnap her certainly pushes him more towards villainy. But I th I'd still say that Cheney's performance has that element of sympathy. Yeah, I think the other thing going on with Christine's disgust once she discovers what he is is almost like, you know, she thinks she's been talking to some sort of ethereal angelic spirit and it turns out it's just a dude you, you know immediately you're like <laughs> ew right 
So he takes her down five floors underground to his little apartment on the underground lake (laughs) and reveals that he is Eric, the Phantom of the Opera, but that he loves her. Her love will make him pure. Yeah, her love's gonna... By bringing out Eric rather than the Phantom. Yeah, he sort of lays this... I guess it is like a guilt trip on her about saying that, like, basically if he's evil and more phantom-like, it's because she rejects him. And if she accepts him and loves him, he'll be a good guy. And that, you know, he's, he wants to be a good guy and that he just loves her very much and that everything terrible that he's done has all been for her. And he's written her a crazy opera called Don Juan Triumphant. And he's like, yeah, and you're going to get married and we're going to live here underground forever. Oh, and never touch my mask. Yeah, which curiosity kills the Christine. Uh, And I love the scene where, you know, her hands are creeping up, the music's swelling, and then he just kind of shuffles in his seat and she's like, shit, and pulls her (laughs) hands away and then goes back in. It's so well done. And then, of course, the reveal shot is famous as well. Yeah, we didn't really talk about it before the break, but the famous thing that always gets said about this movie is that, like, people were fainting in the audience when she pulled that mask off and you see that makeup job for the first time. And it's it's worth remembering that, like, they would have seen that on a mask massive theater screen. Yeah. Right? And just how shocking it would be. The thing about this movie is that Chaney's makeup job is fantastic. Yeah. That's, like, the thing. (laughs) So she freaks out. She's like, no, please, like, let me go and, like, let me perform the opera one last time. Yeah, he nice guys her where he's like, to prove that I'm in love with you and that I'm really devoted to you, I'll allow you to have your own life back, but you have to never see Raoul, the Vicomte de Chagny, again. She can do this one last play. Mm -hmm. That's it. Yeah. So she immediately contacts Raoul. Yeah. <laughs> like it's it's it's, it's, al- it's like the next scene. Yeah, it's it's <laughs> almost kind of hilarious where you pretty much go from a title card that is Christine's dialogue to the Phantom saying, I promise I'll never contact him, immediately to a title card that's like a note that she sent him saying, I promise not to contact you, but here I am contacting you. Yeah. And from there we go into the masquerade. Yeah. Which is so well done. Yeah, so she tells Raoul to meet her at the the ball mask because they'll be wearing masks they they can clandestinely see each other it's obvious (laughs) except he shows up in like a harry potter outfit yeah he's in like a mask he's in a black cloak and a domino mask and she's just in the same dress she wears for the whole movie holding a little mask in front of her face and everyone else is in like clown gear they're the two normies in this field of like clowns yeah but they're like okay well we're gonna talk up on the roof where no one can hear us and then the party stops because the Red Death has shown up. And it's it's probably my favorite moment in the movie, really. It's so well done. And I think because it's in the two-tone Technicolor and his outfit is red, except for the skull mask, like, it just pops. And the skull mask has, like, that hint of green to it. So, mm-hmm. again, just pops. And, like, everyone's, like, not really sure how to interact with this Red Death that just showed up. Yeah. There's this one clown who's like, oh... Hey, let me let me show you around, and he just like whips the dude to the ground, like don't fucking touch me. Yeah, it's it's pretty clear that Eric the Phantom is a huge drama queen. <laughs> I mean, the fact that he lives under an opera house and has written like an opera to this like star that he fell in love with, 
you know, that should make that obvious, but just his speech, the way he talks to people, the way he does things, he's very theatrical. It's all about the show for him. The fact that he's the opera ghost who's been threatening everyone, and he just blatantly shows up to the masquerade in this costume, and everyone pretty much knows who he is, and he just starts saying crazy stuff about how, you know, there are the tombs of tortured men under your feet. Thus does the Red Death rebuke your merriment. Like, this guy and Doctor Doom would get along great. <laughs> when the Red Death shows up, Christine freaks out, understandably. She knows who this is. Um, and she's trying to pull Raoul away to, like, go up to the roof and get away. And Raoul takes off his mask, mm -hmm. which is like, dude, don't, like, th that's the whole reason you're in a mask, is so he doesn't know who you are. Yeah. When he takes off his mask, then we get this, like, close-up-ish of the Phantom in the Red Death outfit, kind of, like, slowly clenching his fist. Oh, yeah. And it's like, I mean, I love that shot, but it's like, guys, you're fucked. Yeah. So they, they go up to the roof, go out of the Technicolor, and now this is the, the Henshigal process scene, where they're tinted blue because it's nighttime and we're up on the roof, but unbeknownst to them, and they're talking about, you know, Christine's explaining to him the deal with the Phantom, and he's promising her how he'll help her escape on the last performance, and they're working out their plans, and unbeknownst to them, like, Eric's above them, like, standing on top of this statue. He's colored. He's still red mm -hmm. in this scene that's otherwise blue. It's like 1925 Sin City up in here <laughs> and he's like listening into their conversation and his capes billowing in the wind all dramatic like Todd McFarlane drew him <laughs> and like it's pretty rad another thing I love about that masquerade scene is that like they clearly knew that they only had the two colors so they've put him in red but they've also like generally the people who are around him tend to be in green so that they're properly contrasting right so christine and rel come up with the plan of when she's done the next performance they'll escape to england so then it's the night of the final performance and christine's not doing well she's like no the phantom knows like we're fucked mm -hmm. rel comes down dries her tears it's really romantic um, and it's kind of like, okay, maybe I can see why she likes this guy. Um, <laughs> Other than his mustache? <laughs> he just looks so English, you know, like so <laughs> pompous. Anyways, yeah. as the performance is starting and like leading up to it, you kind of see the Phantom's uh, hands kind of reach in to switch alcohol for the stagehands and like doing some of these things that are clearly like setting up and like trying to build tension. Mm -hmm. I shouldn't say trying, it does build tension. Mm -hmm. Is it that Joseph Bouquet's death happens? And then she's taken? I think they happen pretty simultaneously. It's hard for me to remember this because they've moved the position of Bouquet's death in the story, right? Yeah. Um, they discover that Bouquet has been hanged, which is the Phantom's go-to method for killing people. And while the stagehands are discovering that, the Phantom's drugged the conductor so that he can get on stage and kidnap Christine and pull her back down into the, the underground. So then the movie kind of divides into a few different parallel tracks. We've got the Phantom bringing Christine down to his lair. Mm -hmm. We've got this mob that starts to form due to the death of Joseph Bouquet that's being led by his brother Simon. We've got Raoul trying to go after Christine. And this is when Raoul gets joined by this character who's been like mysteriously lurking and skulking around the edges of the movie. At some points, the movie's trying to maybe make you think maybe he's the Phantom. Mm -hmm. And in the final 1929 version, this is Ledoux of the Secret Police. 
Yeah. In the original version of this movie and in the novel, this would be the character, the Persian. And this is sort of where the movie starts to diverge from the novel because they've changed who this character is. So him and Raoul go down and, and Ledoux tells him that you need to keep your hand up because if the lasso comes down to, to strangle you. And Raoul's really bad at that. Yeah, he's like, oh, yeah, I'll, I'll totally do that. Next scene, his hand is down. <laughs> and then while they're making their way following Christine, Raoul's brother, the Comte de Chagny, is following him. So we've got well, sort this... Sort of. He's just, like, searching around and just yeah. happens upon the Phantom's lair, just, like, wandering around the <laughs> opera house, which is, like, honestly the most unbelievable part of the movie. I give any plot holes in this movie a lot of slack because I know that this is a movie that had to go through, like, four different edits and directors to get to me. So everyone's following each other. The Phantom gets Christine down to his lair. Raoul and Ledoux fall down a trapdoor into a series of torture chambers... And uh, Raoul's older brother sets off the Phantom's burglar alarms, and the Phantom drowns him in the underground lake. Uh, he tries to kill Raoul and Ledoux, and ends up forcing Christine into this, I'll save Raoul, but you have to be with me, or you can blow up the entire opera house choice. Which, what? <laughs> It's, he Why shows, would that be an option? He shows this mechanism to her that's a chest, and she opens it up, and there's a scorpion and a grasshopper. And if you turn the grasshopper, the entire opera house is destroyed because he has a ton of gunpowder under there. And then the scorpion, if you turn it, I'll let Raoul go free, but you have to stay here with me. To be fair, this is a weird thing from the book, so that's why he has this weird thing. She hesitates for a bit, and then she turns the scorpion, which actually just drains the underground lake to drown Raoul and Ledoux. But she finally promises that she'll do whatever he says, so he lets them go so they don't drown. But now the mob has shown up to kill the phantom, so he grabs Christine, runs through a secret passage, knocks the shit out of Raoul's getaway driver, steals Raoul's getaway carriage. By now, the movie has diverged from the book very much so. Yeah, the mob follows them, chases after the carriage, Christine jumps out of the carriage, Eric crashes when trying to turn around to get her back, um, gets chased by the mob. Um, they corner him at this river, and they beat him up, and they toss him in the river, and it's like... Done. Yeah. There we go. You yep. see some bubbles come out. We're done. Yeah. Yeah, so... For the most part, pretty close to the book, all things considered. Yeah, it's when it's uh, really it's, the ending that's the biggest change, other than, like, some weird backstory changes here and there. Yeah. To kind of go back to one thing that we did skip, uh, the chandelier falling. We mm -hmm. kind of skipped it because it's not exactly pertinent to the story. Like, it is as a distraction so that the Phantom can get Christine down into his lair for the first time. What is really interesting is that, like, in everything from Andrew Lloyd Webber adaptation to pretty much every film after this, the chandelier coming down is a big deal. Yeah, it's... And this, it's just kind of like, there's a build-up to it, and yeah, it's like a big thing when it comes down, and it's really neat if you, like, were to watch it frame by frame how you see a close-up of the chandelier shaking, you see it drop through what kind of looks like stop motion, and then we cut to it having landed 
Mm-hmm. But it's, like, on the seats and people are underneath it, but they've, like, set it up so it looks like it just landed because it has some movement going to it. Yeah, it's it's the movie tricks your eye because it shows you the chandelier fall in one shot and then it shows you it just on the ground in the next and just through kind of the use of motion and editing, it sort of tricks your mind into thinking you've seen it fall on a bunch of people when you really haven't. Yeah. But I kind of like it because it's very sudden. We have everything, we, like, this is the biggest piece of violence that we've seen Mm -hmm. the phantom do otherwise Mm -hmm. it's just been like spooky notes yeah and i think that you know there's something about just the the suddenness and the sudden panic that erupts after it that's a little more effective than what i can remember of like the joel schumacher movies version where (laughs) i I love that you're just taking this opportunity to just hate on that one well it's just like i i remember like it's chandelier falling is like a big thing that like lasts for like 10 minutes where it like gradually falls down like a ramp or something and like no, it sets it just, the entire opera house on fire and like not exactly but okay it's just they turn make it into more of a production which like it's a musical so that's what you do right <laughs> yeah you're totally right about the panic because you see some people trip and fall and then people run over them I kept thinking about when you hear stories about people yelling fire in a crowded theater Mm. and everyone running out. The most damage seems to be of people running out in panic rather than the actual thing. Mm -hmm. One of the things that helps that scene of panic is how many people are in this movie. Oh yeah, there's like thousands of people in this movie. Yeah, just in terms of extras, it really helps sell the audiences of the crowds, of the ballerinas, of the, you know, you can feel how many people are in this opera house the the mob that chases him at the end um you know and i think you really see the money on the screen mm-hmm. in terms of the sets that they built which are gorgeous the costumes everyone's wearing which are fantastic the the production design that the film has with these great sort of cavernous sets with this very dramatic use of light and shadow throughout that's very stylish it helps sort of build this very distinct and memorable mood and atmosphere yeah i do also think that you know one of the reasons why this movie is one of my favorites and it's has nothing to do with the movie and everything to do with the restoration is just the score yeah Um, the carl davis score for this particular restoration is fantastic it's one of the reasons i won't watch any other version yeah, we had a neat little discussion during the movie of when Christine's in the Phantom's Lair for the very first time, and the score incorporates that very iconic Phantom theme from the musical. Yeah, it's just a few notes, it's pretty subtle, but it's evocative. Yeah. And it's just, the score does a really good job of weaving in, you know, when people are actually playing music on the screen, when Chaney's playing the organ and stuff. We should talk about Lon Chaney. Because I think that he's, you know, the draw here, right? He's a big part of why there's a feeling of spectacle in this movie. Yeah. Because it's like the sets, the costume is cool, whatever, like the color is cool. All of that still stands up. His makeup is the other big factor. Mm-hmm. And 100% it still holds up. Yeah. Well, and the thing that's so impressive is I, I find his performance in this movie so impressive because he gets what this movie is going for. He gets the sort of grand Guignol kind of tone of this movie. Feel free to call me out on this, but I think of Cheney's acting in this movie... I thought it was better when he had the mask on Mm. because he was just acting then. Mm. He wasn't trying to do what he had to do with the makeup. Mm. Um, I don't know if that's partly because 
that he probably spends more time on screen with the mask than he does with the makeup. Um, and also with like what's involved with the makeup, it, with it being painful, he might not have been able to evoke as much. When he has the mask on, like the way he gestures with his body movement just seemed a bit more evocative than when he doesn't have the mask. I'd, I'd probably disagree. I see where you're coming from. Mm. Um, I think his whole performance is fantastic. I think it is worth stating that, you know, he's either under heavy makeup or he's wearing the full face mask. So he's all of his performances body language, pretty much, that's, regardless. Yeah. I mean, it's a silent film, so that's sort of par for the course, but he can't really emote with his face either way. I think what you're seeing in a difference in performance is a difference in character. I think oh. when the mask is on, he's playing Eric, and when the mask is off, he's the Phantom, right? You'd think it would be the opposite. Well, because, you know, if you think about it, when the mask is on, he's more subdued, he's more reasonable, you can kind of deal with him and talk with him, and then the second the mask comes off, he's manic, he's crazy, he's completely irrational and laughing and screaming and, and, and just unhinged. And I think there's a difference in character happening there, where when the mask is on, he has a layer of kind of civility between him and the person he's dealing with. And when it comes off, that's all just gone. Yeah. So what you're seeing, I think, is when the mask's on, he's more subtle. And from a modern perspective, we sort of associate subtlety with good acting. And that's not really some sort of absolute, right? But I Definitely. think that's maybe why you're seeing it that way. That's a really good point. I think that, you know, it's it's amazing how much of the Phantom's character you get from his body language, the Phantom's theatricality, his arrogance, his anger. His um, drama. Yeah, his drama, <laughs> his romanticism with a capital R. Yeah. Uh, and, and especially his insanity. You really understand that this guy is unhinged. I think the non-Cheney performances are a little more uneven in quality. They range from good to sometimes very hammy, sometimes within the same performer. <laughs> but I think, again, you could maybe blame that on the multiple directors. I have to say, like, Christine is really good in this. Uh, I forget the name of the actress. Mary Philbin. She's really good in this. The way she plays being hypnotized, both, like, before she's being led down, but when, like, the phantom speaking to her mm -hmm. and the way she like moves her eyes around and stuff like I don't know I think she does a really good job and then when she is panicking um in the phantom's lair uh in the last act of like pleading with him like yeah she does a very good job of like seeming so very frazzled and then so very calm when Raul's rescued and like mm -hmm. connecting with him mm -hmm. this is a movie where the nature of the film in terms of its melodramatic qualities means that everyone gets a bit of a moment where they're a little over the top. Yeah, except for Rel. Rel's just wooden. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I don't know if I've ever seen a version of Phantom where Rel has been anything but. That's just Rel. Yeah, I guess he's just not given much to do except be <laughs> the rescuer at the end, except failing at that. What really struck me in this is the use of light and shadow, mm -hmm. which I think part of the reason why it struck me is because when I see use of light and shadow, it always strikes me as something more subtle. 
for sure. some reason. This is not a subtle movie. Yeah. Like, so in the midst of this spectacle, we see, like, this kind of film noir light through the blinds in the manager's office. Mm-hmm. We see these shadowy figures move through, and that's what's scaring the ballerinas. Yeah, until until he shows himself to Christine, I think the Phantom's just seen as a shadow, right? Yeah. I, I don't know. I found, like, their use of lighting was incredibly effective. When Ledoux and Raoul are chasing after her, it just had such, like... It made me think of the third man, the way mm-hmm. that we see these silhouettes of shadow coming through the hallway before we actually see the figures. Yeah, and the sort of underground tunnels and, and that sort of thing. Yeah, for sure. It's it's definitely got that feel. You're right. Yeah. Yeah. It made me think about how German Expressionism is now influencing film across the ocean. Yeah, absolutely. And even in a movie where... This isn't the kind of movie you'd expect to see that sort of lighting in. I mean, yes, it's a horror film and, you know, the dark and spooky lighting and so on, but we sort of associate that kind of high contrast lighting with sort of very stark, gritty kind of movies, and this movie is so not that, right? Like, this movie's theatrical. It's over the top. It's colorful, right? Like, one of the most interesting things about the look of this film that makes it very unique for me is you're absolutely right. It's got that stark, dark shadows, heavy contrast lighting, but it's not black and white because of the tinting. Yeah, I think every everything is tinted. There's no one shot that's in grayscale. That's right. And the thing about that style of lighting that you're talking about, it's very hard to pull off in color and make it look like anything. Mm. You you know, try to think in your head of how many movies with that kind of lighting style you can think of that are color, right? It's not till more modern stuff. You know, you couldn't do it in Technicolor because Technicolor as a process, um, because of the way old school Technicolor worked where it was multiple layers of film that you cemented together, even once you got to three-tone Technicolor in the late 30s and so on, it that meant you had to have a ton of light. You needed more light to expose the scene. So you couldn't do shadowy lighting and stuff. Yeah, like you see that in this movie itself between the masquerade, which is lit as if it's like a sitcom, Mm -hmm. versus the catacomb shots. Exactly, because you just need so much light for color. So what's unique about this movie for me is getting to see that kind of lighting style, that dark shadowy lighting, mixed with this very garish and colorful palette that this movie has. Mm Mm-hmm. With mentioning The Third Man earlier, obviously I see how this lighting style is developing into film noir Mm -hmm. when we've already placed the roots in German Expressionism. Mm -hmm. With the color, it has me thinking about pop art and the Batman movie. Yeah, like like this entire movie, if you've ever seen the opening credits of the Adam West Batman movie, this entire movie just looks like that. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Which is so interesting. It makes me wonder if there had been like a recent release or something like that of showing this film around again that would have helped inspire parts of the pop art movement. You just had people in Hollywood who remembered seeing these movies as a kid. Mm. Alfred Hitchcock would talk about in interviews, people would ask him about his use of color in movies. And they would ask him about like, specifically in the movie Vertigo, there's a lot of heavy use of green in that movie, in certain scenes. And people said, well, what's up with that? He went, oh, well, in silent movies, when you went to go see the villain or anything creepy or weird happened, it was tinted green. And hey, look, when wherever we're in the Phantom's Lair, 
were tinted green, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, these were movies that affected people the same way that you can look at, you know, Man of Steel today and go, oh, Zack Snyder watched Dragon Ball Z. (laughs) You know, like... (laughs) Yeah, totally. So you can see movies from the 50s and 60s and go, oh, those directors saw these movies when they were growing up, right? I think the other reason why it's so strange to see is because when we see things with this particular use, like you said, it's with gritty crime noir (laughs) stuff, right? Yeah. Where the lighting style serves as part of the spectacle and also as a way to distance yourself from what's going on on screen Mm -hmm. with the crime part of everything. With this movie, I think part of why it's also really unique is it has spectacle in every single aspect, sure. even when it's in the catacombs. When we can't have the the spectacle of multiple staircases, we do it with lighting. Mm-hmm. Um, it, this movie is very deliberate in every shot having uh, that kind of spectacle, and I think it, despite it being like a hodgepodge of different spectacles in a way within yeah. the entire film, yeah. even just looking from like the tinting of every scene to the technicolor to the painting of his cloak... Uh, on the roof. Those are so disparate, Mm -hmm. yet it works. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is a movie where every dollar is kind of on the screen, and it's a weird example of how sometimes movies aren't the work of an auteur, where you can't really point at this and go like, ah, Rupert Julian, the great filmmaker, because 60% of this is him, and then like, 20% of this is Sedgwick, and then, like, 20 more percent is, like, Ernst Lemley and Lois Weber's editing, and and there's just a bunch of people just trying to make this thing work, (laughs) and somehow it comes out the other end working really well. You know, there's things that don't make sense occasionally, or that feel unresolved, characters who just kind of disappear at some point... But it's it's still good, and and you just you just see the the effort put in by everyone. Let's talk about this movie as a horror movie. Then it's a little bit weird and different from any of the horror movies we've maybe looked at so far. It's oh, I disagree. <laughs> okay, rad. I, I'm always really glad when we disagree on this part. Cool. I I just think that this movie is a lot of things. It's got a lot going on, you know, because of what you're talking about with the spectacle. Like, this movie's as much a horror movie as it is a costume drama Mm -hmm. or a romantic melodrama. I mean, I can't really think of any of the horror movies we've watched up to now where romance has factored in as much as it has in this movie, other than maybe, I guess, some student of Prague. Yeah. I think that this movie's a lot of different things. Certainly the, the novel was a lot of different things, too. I think the best description of, you know, what this movie is and what the novel was is um, there was an old-fashioned style of horror theater that was really popular in the early 20th century called Grand Guignol, which was this thing out of Paris. It was this particular theater, the Theater of Grand Guignol in Paris, that was like melodramatic splatter plays, <laughs> like with blood and stuff. Oh my god, like, really? Yeah, it was like... Oh, that's so cool. The idea was that you'd go to see these things where it was all melodramatic plots with stock characters who were all just kind of archetypes, and then it had these horror elements because there was all these grotesque kind of things going on, and people getting their arms chopped off, and like ugly people with grotesque makeup and stuff, and it was just... 
Grand Wignol was the name of the theater, but it came to define this, like, melodramatic style of horror that was very kind of over the top, and that's sort of what I think of in terms of where this movie fits in. I think we're going to end up saying the same things, but coming to it from completely different areas. Okay. And the reason I say that is I I see where you're coming from with there's so many different parts of this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as the spectacle goes, I don't see how this movie is any different from Caligari. Okay, yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> yeah, other than, like, they are very different movies. Yeah, but sure. But in terms <laughs> of, like, their use of spectacle. Yeah. Like, and their use of um, artifice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What's unique is this one tries to keep it, even down to the novel, tries to disguise that artifice, right? With these nuggets of truth. Whereas Caligari's just like, yeah, whatever, wooden cutouts of trees. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, Caligari is not set on planet Earth. Um, (laughs) Whereas this movie, you know, it, it has all this spectacle, but that spectacle is serving goals like recreating the entire Paris Opera House faithfully as a set on a soundstage in Hollywood to such a degree that if you showed me pictures of the sets and the real things side by side, I couldn't tell you which was what. I remember when we first watched this, or when, when you first showed me it, um, I don't think you had said that they were sets, and I assumed that they had shot it on location. Yeah, if this movie had survived in a version that was more true to the novel, it would have been a bit more confused whether this was horror or not. Definitely. But one of the things that has happened to this movie over its course of being re-edited and re-edited and re-edited is every time they did a new edit, they kind of pared down the subplots and the characters more and more and kind of focused it in on, you know, the phantom Christine and Raoul. And by kind of focusing it in, it becomes a Uh, a horror story. It's a romantic horror story, but that's, as anyone can tell you, romance can be a horror story. Yeah. Pairing stuff down, like, you're going to lose stuff, and I think pairing down stuff between, like, Christine thinking that it's her dad's ghost or something Mm -hmm. makes it hard to believe that she's so willing to believe this disembodied voice and, like, trust it and stuff. Uh, So it makes her come off a bit, like, a ditz, almost. And I think it also removes aspects that sometimes come off as, like, core themes. Mm -hmm. But if you know that going in, you can see nuggets of it here and there. Both with, like, the age difference. There's a violin in his lair. Yeah, and and there's footage, you know, there's scenes where he uses that violin that are gone now, right? Yeah. It's funny how the the book's kind of a Rosetta Stone for this movie in a lot of ways, where <laughs> there's stuff in this movie that strikes you, like you said, as like weird little nuggets of like, oh, what's that? But if you've read the book, you're like, oh, that makes sense. Like, there's a bit where they, Raoul and Ledoux fall into this hall of mirrors, and for whatever reason, at the corners in this room, there's like trees, and there's like a noose kind of just hanging, and you're just kind of like, what? Like, what is this? And in the book, it's explained that the, the torture is, because of the mirrors, you think you're in an infinite forest, and that every tree just has a noose on it, and you just keep walking through it, and you never get anywhere, and eventually you just get frustrated and hang yourself. And that just doesn't make any sense in this version. It's just there with no explanation. But if you've read the book, it makes sense. Holy fuck. (laughs) That is very intense. I did not know that that's what that was supposed to be. Exactly! 
you kind of lose things as they've pared stuff away. And like you said, you lose character motivations sometimes. You don't, you know, Christine's a little bit more naive now, and uh, the Phantom's a little more skeevy and, and stuff like that. But I think what you lose in these kind of motivations and in this depth and in this detail, you kind of gain in a kind of clarity of knowing what's going on and who's important and why we're watching what we're watching, right? Definitely. Especially with the ending being changed. I think the ending being changed into the Phantom, grabbing Christine as a hostage, and this mob coming after him, and having this kind of more violent ending certainly solidifies the horror a little bit more than if he'd had the redemptive ending that he gets in the novel. I completely agree. And I think, especially for movies, but also for silent film, Mm -hmm. having some action that has purpose is appreciated. Yeah. When it was the mob chasing after the phantom, I kept thinking of the mob chasing after Nock in Nosferatu, and I just appreciated that this had purpose, right? Like, I know why we're chasing after this dude. Yeah. When we're chasing after Nock, it's like, I don't care. Yeah, for sure. I think this also, you know, you're talking about them importing the influence of those German films. And, I mean, I think the mob chasing after Nock was our first angry mob. This is our first angry mob in an American horror film. A Universal Studios American horror film. Like, we're going to be seeing that mob getting some more work, you know? Definitely. Um, I think that, you know, the horror in this story... Because I think you could look at this movie and go, well, the horror is just superficial, in a way. I think you could look at this movie and you could say, well, it's just because you have this... Disfigured guy. This disfigured guy who's insane and he's putting people in danger and he has a spooky lair and torture devices and he kills people, but what's the deeper core fear here? I think that the deeper core fear is pretty obvious. It's it's the obsessive stalker. Yeah. And it's the nice guy, (laughs) right? Yeah. Like Eric's such a nice guy. Yeah, just give him a chance, Christine. Yeah. He's going to, like, kill Carlotta and, like, everyone in the opera house. He gave you a career. You owe him. Exactly. Ugh. Yeah. I feel so gross just, like, mocking that. But, like, that's what it is, right? Yeah, yeah. It's that's what the fear in this movie is. It's the guy who you can't escape because he feels like you owe him something. Yeah. I talked a little bit earlier about how the Phantom is both sympathetic and villainous. You know, you pity this guy because he's disfigured and because he's been warped into this really angry, irrational, murderous guy. And you can see these hints of humanity that kind of come through every once in a while. But I like that this version doesn't try to humanize him to too much of an extent. There's some versions you watch where you're almost, like, rooting for Christine and the Phantom to get together. And I think if you're rooting for those two to get together, you've screwed up this story. Yeah. This guy is understandable. You can understand where he's coming from, but he's he's a monster. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think... With that understanding and with how wooden Raoul is, <laughs> it makes you go like, 
I don't think she'd be very satisfied with Raoul either. No, I I don't think so. I like, don't think they're yeah. <laughs> like because also like in the opening part where Raoul goes to her dressing room in the first place, he's like, Christine, aren't you glad you finally got your shot on the big stage? Now that you've gotten that out of your system, we can get married. Yeah. Oh yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah, he he doesn't care for the idea of her having this career. Yeah. Um, and the Phantom wants her to have the career, but only if she'll be with him. There's this great part on the roof where Christine and Raoul just came up with this idea of like, yeah, we'll escape to England. And he like looks into her eyes and hugs her. Mm-hmm. And she moves her hand up to where his hand is around her waist and brings it down into a handhold instead. Yeah. Like, I'm sure that this reading isn't quite what they were going for, but it, I, I do just think of it as like, dude, she she's just needing a way out. She needs a friend right now. She doesn't sure. need a lover. Sure. Uh, also, like, they're childhood friends. Like, she's going to, she sees you as, like, a true confidant. Yeah. Not as a future husband. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah, you're yeah. totally right. So Raoul is just as bad? Really? Well, just as bad is, <laughs> is pushing it. Raoul never murdered anyone. Very true. I think, though, that, like, it's funny how much relevance this movie kind of retains in terms of its examination of, like, older, talented, self-pitying white guys who, like, latch on to the idea that some, like, naive ingenue is going to be, like, their salvation. Yeah. And how weird and creepy that is because, you know, I think that for Eric, like, Christine's just a a prop in his life. Like, he's felt dehumanized his whole life mm-hmm. and if she, he can get this one innocent girl to love him that means that he's okay right it's about like him trying to she's a tool to his redemption yeah i think that for eric christine's a way of validating himself as a human being right and that's about it yeah and validating himself as a as an artist i guess too because she's gonna sing his opera and of his own talent, because in his mind, he's the reason she's a good singer. Right, he discovered her, he taught her, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. It's about validation for him. If I have anything else to say about Eric, it would be that I love that in his final moments, he's still like a consummate showman and charlatan. Because <laughs> yeah. like, his whole persona as the opera ghost is about like manipulating like light and shadow and tricks and mirrors to like fool people into thinking he's supernatural. And his last moment in this movie is the mob descends on him and he holds up his hand in a fist like he's got a grenade. Yeah. And then he just laughs at everyone and slowly unfurls his hand to reveal that he's got nothing at all. And then they throw, beat him to death and throw him in the river. I think it's something that people might overlook, but you're totally right that it's so indicative of his personality. I think it's one of the reasons why Cheney's performance is so good, because obviously there's a lot of differences between the two, but they overlap in the fact that both of them are showmen. Mm. And so he's able to give the Phantom that side of himself, right? I also just love that this movie has, um, we'll be talking about more in future episodes, but Sarah and I call it a universal ending, <laughs> where once the monster is dealt with, the movie just stops. There's yeah. no denouement, there's no, you know, scene of Raoul and Christine kissing on honeymoon, like, how's the opera house doing? Who, Who cares? Knows? The Phantom's dead, he's the title character, movie's over. Wrap it up, boys. <laughs> 
Do we want to move into ranking? For sure. Where are you thinking this belongs? So, in our top five, number five is Dune of Prague, four is Hands of Orlac, three is Nosferatu, two is Caligari, one is Phantom Carriage. Mm-hmm. I, I would put it somewhere between one and five. <laughs> because I think it's better than Student of Prague. Right. I don't know if it beats out Phantom Carriage for me. Okay. Because of the spectacle, I'm thinking it should be near Caligari. Mm-hmm. Because of its use of light and shadow and of mood setting, both in like the title cards and in what we see on screen, mm-hmm. I think it can compete with Oilac. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the Nosferatu is right there. I can see why people would tie this film in Nosferatu because of the light and shadow. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of similar shots. Yeah, I think this, <laughs> it's weird. I think this would be better than Nosferatu. Like, on the list, I think it should go above Nosferatu. But it competes evenly with Orlac for me. Yeah, it's a weird one because, like, you know, it's the only movie that we're talking about in this top five range that's, you know, American? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Whoa, that's a good point. It's it's so kind of different, right? Because it's based in a lot of different things, and it's got a lot of different goals going on. It's also, so it's American, but it has the French setting. Sure. Which makes me think, again, of Orlac, which is like... You know, they don't explicitly say where it is, but... It's it's French, yeah. Yeah. The thing about the other movies in our top five, too, um, other than maybe Student of Prague, is there's a kind of spareness to their aesthetic. Like, how many people live in the city in Phantom Carriage, right? Like, five? I would agree, except for Caligari. Well, Caligari has those weird, elaborate sets and stuff, but, like, the fact that they're so obviously sets, like, that still feels like a really lonely movie to me. You know, it still feels like a movie that's about, like, three people. And, like, the sets are very, give you almost a claustrophobic feel. Because even though the whole city is painted behind that guy, it's just a wall. Um, yeah. There's a spareness to those films that this movie does not have. This movie's cast of thousands. This movie's <laughs> giant sets. This You know, so it's hard to kind of compare them. I totally agree with you that this is kind of the range. I think this is better than Student of Prague. I think that comparing it directly to Hands of Orlac, the thing that strikes me about this movie is that its story is so clear and so strong that it survived five different edits to arrive at a version that still made sense. Whereas Hands of Orlac is a singular creative vision of one director and just completely shits itself at the end (laughs) trying to explain how the fuck its story works. Yeah, okay. So, above or lack then? Yeah, and then that's where I start to run into difficulties. Because something about the eeriness and the spareness and the unrelenting nature of vampire as plague in Nosferatu strikes me as more terrifying than Eric's kind of diluted madness. You know, the nice guy stalker is, <laughs> is definitely scary, but, like, ultimately you can beat him over the head with a rock and throw him into a river. You know, that's what I think of when I think of it versus Nosferatu. Yeah, that's true. To to defeat Orlok in Nosferatu, we need to have sacrifice. Mm -hmm. In addition to all those deaths of the plague. Yeah, and I mean, Phantom still fits with our other working definition of horror in terms of survivors, right? Because, like, Uh you know, Raoul fucking doesn't save the day. Christine doesn't save the day. A mob shows up. And takes this guy, and they're just left cradling each other as the mob parts around them like the Red Sea. Um, 
then I think about Caligari, and I mean, I there's part of me that definitely likes watching Phantom of the Opera more. If you gave me a choice, I would probably watch Phantom over Caligari. But then there's the fact of, like, the reason Caligari's higher than Nosferatu on this list is that we identified that Nosferatu's story was a little bit fractured because of its nature as an adaptation, and Caligari was much more tight and organized. And I think that's probably true of Caligari versus Phantom, too. You can't deny that as good as Phantom is, it's still got a lot of weird vestigial limbs hanging around because of its nature as an adaptation and its its troubled production history. I think, um, I mean, like, Caligari is an original story, right? Yes. So it's a lot easier to do that with an original story. Oh, for sure, yeah. Um, Phantom of the Opera ultimately succeeds. Sure. Like, of the things that kind of hang on, mm-hmm. there's the weird floating head. Right. That doesn't make any sense unless you've read the book. There's some nuggets here and there of the violin stuff. Carlotta's mom. Yeah. There's the fact that, like... If you didn't have the title cards, the Persian is the Persian. But these title cards have transformed him into Ledoux of the Secret Police, even though he still wears, like, a fez and has the, like, kind of, like... Eyeliner? Yeah, the, like, 1920s archetypal stereotypical signifiers of a Middle Eastern man. There's, like, a few other little weird things here and there. I think you're right about, you know, Phantom succeeding. But it also then comes back to the kind of fear in Caligari of going mad and the fear of authority and the fear of, you know, not being able to trust your own senses versus what's going on in Phantom with just, like, there's a crazy guy out to get me. Yeah. I guess what I'm saying is that I can see arguments for putting it above both those movies. I think, no matter what, I think Phantom Carriage is better. Definitely. But I think based on the rationales we used to kind of rank Caligari and Nosferatu, my heart's kind of telling me below Nosferatu, above Hands of Orlac. I don't know. I'm struggling. I feel like it should go above Nosferatu. Mm -hmm. What's the rationale there? Oh, it's so hard, Ben. (laughs) Because you're totally right about, like, the death. And, like, the sacrifice and, like, the starkness of Nosferatu ultimately beating out the horror that's in Phantom of the Opera. But Phantom does such a better job of adapting things, even after all of its troubles. Yeah, you get the feeling that the people who made Phantom... Actually finished the book? Well, yeah, I get the (laughs) feeling there's so much in this movie that's directly from the book... Even to little details like um, the, the, the cards that he gives to the managers and sends to Christina and stuff being edged in black. Yeah. That's a thing from the book. Yeah. I get the feeling that Carl Lemley was a big fan of that novel. That, like, he read it and was like, yep. Whereas, yeah, you're right. Like, Henrik Galeen was almost <laughs> trying as much as possible not to adapt that book for a different set of reasons. Let's be serious. Yeah. And then there's also the fact that this is a ranking of best-to-worst horror movies. Yes. Not movie movies. Yeah, like I said, like, I would rather watch Phantom over Caligari. I'd probably rather watch Phantom over Phantom Carriage. Like, I love Phantom Carriage, but, like, if you were just, like, on a Friday <laughs> night, like, just like, hey, man, like, what do you want to watch over dinner? Like, Phantom of the Opera or Phantom Carriage? I'd be like, definitely Phantom of the Opera. That is a fun time. So, I mean, in terms of a list of my favorite movies, Phantom of the Opera might go pretty high. But in terms of a list of horror movies... Yeah, I guess it goes 
below Nosferatu, above Hands of Orlac. Okay, that's where it's going. <laughs> I At don't number want it to go there, though. Four, number four on the list, The Phantom of the Opera, 1925-29, directed by Julian and Company. <laughs> so if you would like to see this list that I'm agonizing over, you can check out screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. You can send in appeals or suggestions through our ask box there. Feel free to also send us an email, screamscenepodcast.gmail.com, to send in appeals or suggestions or comments of any kind. If you would like to subscribe, uh, you can do so through iTunes and on SoundCloud. Uh, If you do so, please leave us a review. That would be great to hear what you think of our show, but also it helps others find this amazing show. Getting a little full of ourselves, aren't we? Um, <laughs> hey, we have we have like 14 episodes. I feel like that's that's getting high and mighty territory. Okay. Come at us on Twitter. We are at underscore scream scene. Mm-hmm. If you Do want to find the scream scene YouTube playlist, you can also find it on our Tumblr page uh, or just search scream scene YouTube playlist on YouTube and that'll take you to links to the curated versions of the films uh, that I have prepared for you to watch along with us. What are we watching next week? We are watching Wolfblood, A Tale of the Forest. Ah! Oh my god, I'm so excited for this movie! So this, I've never seen this movie. Yeah. This movie gets the title of first werewolf movie ever made, and it is set in the Canadian forests uh, the, the, that's presum- a lot of forest. Presumably like, it's British Columbia, but I don't really know. <laughs> um, and it's about a guy who works for a logging company who is afraid that he might be turning into a werewolf. Our first Canadian movie. And it's the first werewolf movie. You're excited because it's Canadian. I'm excited because it has werewolves. I mean, I'm also excited because it's werewolves. Sure. Anyways, don't miss it. Next week, Wednesdays. Scream scene. Be there, be square. Catch you later, creatures of the night. (laughs) Bye. Bye.